Welcome to Chinuch 2.0, a show about the massive changes happening to how we do Chinuch, some of which may never be the same again. to discuss a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is how we teach Chumash to our children. The bedrock of how we teach Torah to our children, both boys and girls, has always been through the study of Chumash. At the young age of five or six, the children are handed their new Chumash with a lot of fanfare and ceremony. The parents come down, the grandparents come, And that becomes the foundation for everything that they're going to learn throughout their time in school. And for good reason. Chomish is the essence of Torah. It's the Dvar Hashem. It's what we got on Har Sinai. Of course we should start with that. But, as with everything in life, not everything is so simple. As adults, we start to understand how difficult Chomish really is. Try learning Parshas Bereshis as an adult. It's incomprehensible. What you've been taught as a kid doesn't work for you as an adult. And then there's the story of the Egel, the dispute between Yosef and his brothers, the seemingly petty struggle between Leah and Rachel. What did Moshe do wrong when he hit the rock? Aaron and Miriam. And the list goes on and on. Are we really teaching Chumash correctly? Or perhaps, as we will discuss, we're setting up our children with a misunderstanding that can last them throughout life. Is Chumash just a collection of short vatluch that we like to share by the Shabbos Suda? Or is there much, much more? On this show, I invited Rabbi David Foreman, who is very well known as a lecturer, author, and someone who spent his entire career, entire life, working on Chumash, working on the meaning, the deeper meaning behind the words of the Chumash. He has written and spoken extensively, and he has a very, very large and committed following. He runs a site called Aleph Beta, and we'll talk a little bit about what, what's on the site, you can join the site and, and really read a lot of the articles and watch his videos where they do a great job at bringing in a very deep and true understanding of what's really going on in the Psukim and the, chum, the Chumash. And we talked a lot about his philosophy of how, what's the best way to study Chumash as adults and how we can do a much, much better job in our schools of teaching Chumash to our children. And on his site, you can find there's an entire curriculum for teachers and educators on how they could take his materials and teach it in, in the classroom. And there's a lot to be said over here of, of, for us as, as parents and for the Rebbeim and teachers. There, there's so much in the Chumash that we're not giving over to our children. And the essence of Yiddishkeit really comes down to how what our relationship is with learning Chumash. And as Rabbi Foreman says in our conversation, he says, people find meaning 
through different ways. Some people find meaning in their Yiddishkeit through a relationship with a, a tzaddik. Some people find meaning in Yiddishkeit through tefillah. And a lot of people could and should get meaning in their Yiddishkeit through the study of Chumash. Just learning Chumash the proper way can really give you a whole new appreciation for Yiddishkeit, for our religion, and connect us to Torah in a much deeper way. So in this conversation, you're going to hear a lot of that coming through his passion for what he does. And I hope you'll take away a new appreciation of how we should learn Chumash and how we should be teaching Chumash to our children. And even if you're not in a position of Chinuch and you're not teaching, you should still, for yourself, every person for themselves should get a much deeper appreciation for Chumash and how to study it properly. And this goes for both men and women. We hope that this will affect both our lives and our relationship to the Torah, to learning Torah, and also in the way we give it over to our children. Let's go to our discussion, our conversation with Rabbi Foreman. Welcome, Rabbi Foreman. Hey, it's good to be here. Nice to see you, Aaron. So I was recommended to have you on the show because uh, you, as, as, a life, as a lifelong educator, someone who's teaching thousands of people all, all over the world through your videos and your, and your articles, your lectures, your books on Chumash and Medrash, um, it, we wanted to speak about the topic of teaching Chumash, how to teach Chumash properly and you know, how, how, we, how we could do it differently than it's being done. Okay. Um, so, so just could you share with our audience a little bit of how you got into this and you know, why you made this your, your passion? Sure. Um, I mean, the story goes back uh, for a while. Um, I guess the, the beginnings of the story kind of take me back to uh, you know, my upbringing. I grew up actually on the West Coast um, in the Bay Area, and uh, my, uh, I ended up moving to the East Coast uh, as a young teenager, my father died when I was young, my mom remarried, and I kind of had this sort of whiplashy effect of moving into Kew Gardens, New York from society, coming from the Bay Area. Um, and it was a, you know, it was it was an adjustment. But one of the things that was interesting for me or, or, or puzzling for me um, was it was just the beginning of high school. And I was just entering a sort of traditional high school yeshiva program. And I noticed that, you know, the only thing that we were really learning was Gemara. I mean, it, that was it, right? It was just hours and hours a day learning Gemara. And, you know, everyone believed that God gave the Torah, that God give, gave Chumash, right? And it just struck me as strange that the book was kind of being ignored, at least for boys, like we weren't really studying it. It's true, they would assign you to learn the Parsha over Shabbos on your own and take a Bechina on, on Rashi afterwards. But it wasn't like anybody was giving you hadracha and what to do or how to learn it. And I noticed that to the extent that people were talking about Chumash, it was mostly kind of during Shalashudas, somebody would get up and they would say a vart. And I noticed something about those varts, which is that nobody really believed that they were true, right? I mean, hence the word Shalashudas Torah, right? <laughs> and, and it was almost like there was this social contract where someone would get up and say something for like 10 minutes. And he didn't believe it was true. And nobody around the table really believed it was true. But it was like a nice exercise in mental gymnastics. And then, you know, you would say, Yashikoach, that was very nice. And the person would sit down. But, you know, but no one would, would really think that they were enlightened. Nobody had really gained anything other than this exercise in mental gymnastics. And it just struck me as strange that if we really believed that God gave the book, that God wouldn't be smart enough 
to, you know, to write it in a way that every generation could really be nourished by it and, and could take something, could take something out of it. So I remember in high school, I was uh, um, traditional yeshiva. I was, you know, Nary Israel all the time. And uh, I remember this, this moment where I kind of was sitting out on the lawn and I just decided, you know, if God wrote this book, he must have written in a way that we can really learn something from it. There's got to be deep meaning in here. But I just didn't know how to get to it. And I remember vividly picking up Sefer Shmos and trying to get my, trying to figure it out. And I couldn't get anything but just the basic story. And it was very frustrating. And I just felt like there was something I'm missing. There's something I'm missing. And kind of years passed. And I, I just don't think I had the tools. Um, I just, and, and no one around me had the tools, really. Um, and uh, time went on, and, uh, um, and then kind of something happened. Um, we were talking a little bit off screen before, and I, uh, I was about to tell you the story, so I'll tell it to you now. Um, it was, it, when was it? It must have been in uh, the, the mid-90s or so. Um, after I'd spent some time working for art school on their Gamara project for about seven years. Um, so there was a bookstore in Baltimore where I lived called Bibelow, Oliver Shalom. It no longer exists. And Bibelow is, uh, it was sort of like a community center. The authors would get up and they would speak. And it was 1996 and a, a TV show had come on uh, television by Bill Moyers called Genesis, A Living Conversation. It was an analysis of the of Safer Bracious with all sorts of people in the room from all sorts of different backgrounds. And it was a big splash on TV. And Biblo decided that they were going to do their very own version of, uh, of this kind of discussion group in the store the night before the premiere uh, show. And so they asked me, I, I'd hung around the Judaica section there, and they asked me if I would participate. So I said, you know, be happy to be one of the panelists if you guys want to do something. And I promptly forgot about it. And I got a call a couple of months later from Deep Blonde. They said, we just want to remind you that, you know, next week you're going to be speaking here. You're one of our panelists for this, for this show. I said, great. Um, what's the topic? So they said, oh, we're going to be speaking about Jacob's deception of Esau and Isaac. I said, oh, very nice. Uh, who else are the panelists? They said, well, we had a really hard time getting people, but the only other panelist we managed to get was the chairman of the Department of Philosophy at the College of Notre Dame. So it's just going to be you and him. <laughs> so that's when I realized like, okay, gee, nothing in yeshiva has prepared me for this, right? I'm going to be the sacrificial rabbi, you know, dealing with this story that fomented probably uh, ages of anti-Semitism over the centuries and, and you know, over a, a hostile audience, what, what am I going to do? So it kind of forced me into figuring out, like, how do you teach something like that to an audience that doesn't share any of the assumptions that you and I would share? You, know, you can't just say, well, Asa was a really bad guy. It says in the Medrash, he was Ovid of Adazar, he was some dealer Arias all in one day. So, you know, he was bad and he got what came to him. Mm-hmm. Where is that in the text? How, how is it that you understand it? And it kind of forced me into trying to figure out an approach to the story based on shot alone. In other words, just looking at the shot carefully, just really carefully, just reading the words. What do you see in the words? And that was kind of the beginning of a journey for me. It launched me on a journey of 
you know, and, and getting to your point about, you know, ways that we can learn Pumash in new kinds of ways, this would be the number one thing I would say, which is try this, right? In other words, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, I've, I've come to later call this the lullaby effect. When you and I think about um, Chumash, one of the problems that we and many Mechanchem have is, is, is a paradoxical problem. And it's that we actually know the stories too well, right? You think like, it's great, you know the story really well, right? But the problem with knowing the story too well is that you think you've seen everything, right? You've, you fail to be surprised by the story. You fail to be surprised by the questions which are right there in the story waiting to be asked, right? So for example, you know, if you're reading the story of, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that Yaakov and Esau story, right? So, you know, there's questions in that story. Uh, for example, um, you know, here is, here, here's Yaakov, he's deceiving his father. Right, and you, and if you actually read through the story, I'll just you know. Go so wait, wait, let, let, wait, before we get we get to that, I, I want to go. I want to get into specific examples, but yep. uh, but uh, I, I, you know, it's just, this is a great a great introduction. So now, le- leading into into the you know to the, the main topic of the discussion is teaching Chumash yep. in schools. So right, you know, that's the, usually the first thing that children are taught. You know, they come into school, the first thing they're in the pre one A or for primary first grade, they start learning Chumash. Like the way the way it's being taught today. Is you know just read, read read the words, whatever the Rebbe teaches, whatever the te- whatever the Mora teaches, and like it, it like you said, it gets baked into them from a young age, and they don't and they don't learn to challenge it because they're so young and they're so impressionable, and then you know it stays with them for life. So like you know let let let, let let's try to go through the the stages of like what should be done at that young age differently than what we're doing now, or what would be a better way of teaching Chumash. Yeah, I mean, the part of the issues I think that, you know, we really struggle with also uh, coming out of young ages is that I think Rebeam and Moros are, are doing whatever they can to try to make Flemish exciting, right? And part of the problem is, is that I think they think that in order to make Flemish exciting, um, the Flemish itself is too dry. <laughs> I, I think this is what they worry about, right? So how am I going to get a kid? in the year 2021, where I'm competing with YouTube, I'm competing with whatever else, how am I going to liven up my classroom to make it really exciting? So I think what will happen is that teachers will turn to medrash at a very young age. The medrash is exciting. If I can talk about, oh, living for thousands of years and clinging on to the sides of the of, of, of you know of the of the, of the teva, teva. Uh, that's a pretty vivid image, right? right? You know, if I can talk about the long arm of the daughter of Pyro, this incredible miracle, right? And and I can assign an arts and crafts project where kids can like create this really long arm out of paper mache and they can bring it home. Then I have the Fantastic Four, you know, from the comic books in real life. It, it you know it's amazing, stretchy man, right? The problem with this is that there's long-term, there's long-term problems of doing this, right? right. Because what happens is, is like a kid maybe a, a kid is not taught to understand that there's any difference between drash and shot, right? And that becomes problematic because first of all, drash says some really wild things. I mean, that might be fine when I'm kindergarten to hear about the long arm of the daughter in Pyro, but you know, as I'm an adult and I'm 18, and I'm 19, and I'm 20, and I'm starting to think about that, 
And I go back to remember what my Mara said, and I start reading the text, and I don't, I can't find that part about her arm stretching. But I could have sworn it was there because that's how I learned the story. Where is I, it? I had a few other examples that, that, like everybody, if you ask the average person in the street, they'll say, "Oh, it's for sure in the Torah." Like the story yeah. of the Malach switching the poison with with Pesuel and and Eliezer. <laughs> it's 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 there. It's got to be there. You know, it's so baked in. And the other the story of. Um, of, of you know the, the the Jews when they went out of Mitzrayim the, the they took out the dough and it baked in the sun also you know like the people people think that you know this is a pasuk and it's and it's not there yeah I mean uh, you know the uh, if you think about even why Avram was chosen ask your average kid why was Avram chosen what would they tell you because right? he was thrown into the fire yeah <laughs> thrown into the fires and he came out right just like Daniel you know. And it's like, can you please open to the page in the comments where I was <laughs> where running the fires? Yeah. And it's like the page through. I could have sworn it was there. <laughs> it's just like, and right, and, and so you have this problem, this crisis of faith, where kids will get to, you know, if they ever God forbid go to a secular college and get exposed to a Bible course, you know, and, and they're completely unprepared. To, to to deal with it. And even in teaching their own kids and even their own learning, uh, just hearing about these fantastic stories and then think to themselves, well, one second, hold on. Let's say I was the daughter of Paro, right? And here I am, I'm walking on the side of the river. And one day um, I see this child crying, right? And, and uh, before I know it, my arm, right? Which is like a regular arm, starts to stretch, right? And like a fishing rod goes out 35 feet to get the child. Like, what would happen? Let's just stop the tape right there. You're the daughter of Paro. You're you're literally there, right? Your arm begins to stretch. What's the next thing you would do? Try to swim or just leave, ignore? I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, you, I mean, if you want, if you... Aaron, let's say you're not the, you're Aaron. Yeah. Here you are. You're walking. Man, let's just put it in, in nowadays, right? Right. You're Aaron. Where do you live? I live in West Hempstead. All right. Here you are. You're walking by the shore in West Hempstead, the North Shore, right? You're taking a little shpatzir on Shabbos, right? Mm -hmm. And you see there's this little child somewhere, right? And you're thinking, oh my gosh, what's this little child? And all of a sudden, Aaron's arm literally begins to stretch <laughs> like this fishing rod, right? Goes mm -hmm. out like. 35 yards right. right as your arm is stretching what what would what would happen next what would you do yeah i, I would uh, call an ambulance <laughs> you call an ambulance you freak out yeah. you go running back to the urgent care my arm my arm what's happening right. my arm it would be the end of the story right but that didn't happen why why didn't she scream my arm my arm right it was like a, it was as if it was a normal thing her arm stretched like so how do we understand that so it causes this crisis in faith. Like that can't be what happened, right? You, in order to be a from Jew, I have to believe it's bad enough that I have to believe everything else that nobody believes around me. I have to believe in God. I have to believe in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. I have to believe in all this stuff. Now I also have to believe that the, the, her arm scratched. And I've also got to believe all this other stuff that's not even in the text. Like you're overloading me with right. what I have to believe that's not even computing in my mind. So it's dangerous as, as a Rebbe, as a Mora, right? I get short-term benefit. I can keep the kid engaged by telling them about, oh, holding on to the ark, right? But what happens, as you say, years from now, when that gets baked in as a child, we have to understand that the stuff you teach now gets baked in as a child. 
So what I would suggest is kind of two things here. The first thing I would suggest is that if you're going to teach medrash, even from a young age, right, there's a way to teach it and a way not to teach it. The way not to teach it is to teach it as if it's pshat, right? As if medrash and pshat are the same thing. We all know that there's different levels of learning Torah, but we don't often communicate that properly to our kids. We just homogenize it. It's like you're reading the little medrash says and you're reading the plumage and there's no difference between the two. And we just tell it as one seamless story. That's a bad idea to, to give a muscle from air traffic control, right? If I have a lot of planes over Kennedy Airport, one of the things I'm playing with is that there are different altitudes, right? There's different levels of plane. If I don't realize that and everybody's at the same altitude, I get to get a lot of crashes, right? You have to make sure you understand there's planes flying at different altitudes. If they're flying at different altitudes, things work. So the first thing to communicate to kids just from the get-go is just that there are different levels of Havana and Torah, right? The level, the idea of Shat, Rema, Soda, and Drash is something you can teach a little kid that there's just different levels. Use the aircraft analogy, use some sort of analogy to make levels, but help them understand that learning Torah isn't just one thing. There's different levels that don't contradict each other, even though they may be different, right? Different levels of depth, right? And you can use different mashalim to help them understand it. One other mashal, which I like to use with medrash, is that of playing a piano. I mentioned to you off screen, I have a child here who's practicing piano in the background, right? So one of the things you learn early on when you're playing piano is that if you play with two hands, the right hand and the left hand don't do the same thing, right? So the right hand typically carries the melody. The left hand typically carries the harmony. Now, Aaron, if I'm playing Old MacDonald had a farm and I'm playing it only on the right hand, what does it sound like? It sounds like Old MacDonald had a farm, right? Mm -hmm. But now, what if I play it only on the left hand? The only thing you're hearing is Old MacDonald had a farm, but only on the left hand, not the right hand. What does it sound like? You won't, you won't, you won't, you won't be able to make it out. You won't even be able to make it out. It sounds like nonsense. Right. The shot is the right hand. Drash is the left hand, right? If I just play drash without listening to chat, without hearing what chat is saying, I just listen to the drash, the story of the daughter of Pharaoh and her long arm, the story of Og holding onto the ark, all these stories, they sound crazy. They, they don't even make any sense. They sound wild and fantastical. It's not even a story, right? But if you read them together and, you, and you're able to understand that there's two different things that are coming together, so two different levels that come together create a sense of depth, create a sense of richness. You listen to Old MacDonald Had a Farm on the right and left hands, it really sounds like Old MacDonald Had a Farm, but richer than just the right hand. There's right. a sense of depth, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what Medrash can do. Medrash can lend depth. I'll just give you a really quick example. Of, you know, Take the daughter of Paro. We can talk about it just to what that might mean. <clears throat> Let's talk about an shot for a moment, just the right hand, right? Aaron, you're the daughter of, forget, let's even say you're the maidservant of the daughter of Pharaoh, because the drash actually picks up on the word maidservant. But right. right? So the word amma is a homonym. It can mean two things. It can either mean arm, right? Mm -hmm. Or it can mean maidservant. Maid. Now, shot, it means maidservant. But chazal darshanet, as if it means, that she sent her arm, right? Her, her forearm and her forearm sent. Okay, so let's just stay with the shot right now. She sent her maidservant. 
Aaron, you're the maidservant. I want you to just like play maidservant. And by the way, this is a good tool that that Rebeam and Morris Teachers can do, do, right? Which is just like to put yourself in the shoes of the person to really understand what's going on in their head a moment. So, right, just just take that maidservant. Imagine you, Aaron, are the maidservant. I'll play daughter of Pharaoh, and you play maidservant, and we'll just play this out for a moment. So here I am. I'm walking by the Nile. I think it would be nice to go for a swim, right? I'm the daughter of Cairo. I grow up in 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 pleasure and a luxury and everything else. And I'm here. I am I'm swimming by the Nile. And of course, there's this little inconvenient decree of my father who has everyone drowning children in the Nile, right? And I'm and I'm walking there, and my swim is interrupted by the cries of a child, right? I hear the cries of a child coming from afar, and my I don't know exactly what's going on, but I'm curious. So, and I begin to suspect that it's a Jewish child, right? And I and and as the text says, vatachmolov. Right, she has compassion on the child, but But she also understands it's a Jewish child, right? I mean, that's kind of complicated, right? Now, Aaron, you're a maidservant. You're my maidservant. Who pays your salary? You do. You I do, don't. or your fa- her, 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 your father. <laughs> my father. That's a very that's a critical difference, right? Yeah. My father pays your salary. Yes. Right. So, give, give me your job description. What do you think your job description is if you're a handmaiden of the daughter of Pharaoh? What, what's your mission? To to make sure she behaves and uh, and follows the rules. That's right. I got to make sure she behaves. I got to make sure she follows the rules. Keep her out of trouble. You know, she's a teenager. Who knows what she can do? Right. Okay. So all of a sudden, here I am walking by the Nile, and now it's not easy. You think for the populace to be throwing babies in the Nile. It's a national security concern. These Jews, the population explosion, we have to do anything we can, but they're doing it because the crown says you have to do it. Along comes my daughter, right? And decides that she has compassion on this little child. And she wants to go be the hero. And she wants to go save the child. So she sends you, Aaron, and says, you go and fetch that child, right? What would you say? Tell me what you would tell me. I would say it doesn't look like such a good idea and try to talk you out of it because Your Highness, uh, I, the so daughter of the king is, is violating her father's rules. It would be set a very bad example. Your Highness, you're setting a terrible example for the population. You think it's easy for people to do this? Uh, you know, you can't go do it. But I'm insistent. Aaron, you must go. Right, I, I'm insistent. I, 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 I'm morally impelled. I, I hear this child. I can't. I, right, and you're not going to stop me. So, but what else would you say to me? Come back. It's, to it's me. really hard to get. He's he's really far out. It's dangerous. I, I, I don't know if I can get it's to him. It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous for everyone. Well, your Highness, what are you going to do with this child? You're going to bring him back to the palace, right? Okay, I'll get the other child, but. Uh, but let's let's give the child away. Let's find some Jew somewhere and we'll give him a child and you don't have to have anything to do with the child anymore. No, Aaron, I heard the cries of the child. I'm morally obliged to personally mother this child. I must mother this child. You, you're tearing your hair out, right? You say, your highness, uh, you can't. I, I, what, what, you're going to go back to Hitler, back in the palace, the king himself, and you're going to come with this Jewish child. Uh, you know, your highness, if you're going to take the child, do me a favor, bring him back to the palace, but don't tell anyone that he's Jewish. You're adopting an Egyptian child, raise him as Egyptian the whole time, never tell him anything. 
No, Aaron, he's a Jewish child. I must tell him the truth at some point about his lineage. And you see, she does, because by Yetzel Echav, he goes, he understands it's his brothers who told him that. The only mother he ever knows is Bas Paro. She must have told him at some point. This is the vision she actually has. And it's a vision that seems impossible, right? Okay, now let's go back to that moment that she sends the maidservant. What did she do? She can't have sent her, her hand, right? She'd be running back to screaming to the king, right? She sent her maidservant. So what a Chazal making my life so hard for by telling me, no, she sent her hand. It's harmony. It's harmony. Chazal saw a problem in Pshat. The problem they saw in Pshat is the discussion you and I are having. It can never happen. She can't succeed. What she's trying to do, she can't do, right? Everybody's got limits. Right. If you, if you are the daughter of power, if I'm I'm a rabbi, you're a rabbi. Right. You got limits. Let's say you like disco dancing. All right. So you'll do it in your home. Whatever. You're not going to go to a discotheque. You're a rabbi. There's things you can't do. Right. You're the daughter of power. There's things you can't do. You can't just go. In other words, if I asked you, is that child in your reach? No. In every way but the physical, that child's out of your reach. There's something called your arms reach right? What your arm can actually reach. That child is out. Sure. Physically, the child's in your reach. All you got to do, she's 30 yards away, just send the maidservant, you can get the child. But in every way but the physical, what you want to do with that child, you can't do. Your social construct doesn't allow you to do it. But the minute she sent that maidservant, Batishlach Hasamasa, Chazal are telling you she was reaching for something completely beyond her reach. And what happened? She, she got, got it. it. She actually succeeded in bringing this child back and raising him. And, and her dream came true. Even though it's not impossible, there's no way she can actually do that. She reached for something entirely beyond her reach. And Chazal tell you her arm stretch. That mm-hmm. in effect, when she was sending her maidservant, it was like her arm was stretching. That that's why the Torah uses that word for maidservant, not shifa right? But Amma, because there's that double entendre, there's that little hint of harmony coming to tell you that there's more than meets the eye when she's sending that maidservant. It's mm-hmm. as if her arm is stretching. And Chazal are telling you that sometimes in life, you actually can be a crazy person. You can actually try to achieve something that you have no business achieving because there's no way you could ever achieve it, right? But you can try stretching your arm. And if it's good, and if it's noble, and if it's right, HaKadosh Baruch Hu can help you. And before you know it, your arm is stretched, right? And you actually reach for something beyond your reach. Something like that is going on in Medrash, right? And that's something which, believe it or not, you can communicate to kids. You can even communicate to first graders. You can even communicate to second or third graders. You just got to do it slowly. You got to bring them into the story. And the excitement, I think, comes if for Rebbe's and Moros who are looking at how do I get kids excited? It's not that you're exciting them with special effects, so to speak, right? If you're a movie maker and you rely on special effects, right, that is never going to be able to really make you a good movie, right? Because special effects without a story is not really a movie. But ask yourself, what are Chazal telling me in the harmony that contributes to the story, that makes the story more powerful and more compelling? Mm-hmm. And now ask yourself, does and, and then just separate it out. Just play the right hand and say, what are the issues in the right hand, in the chat that Chazal are finding problematic? 
Help me dramatize those issues to kids. How do I make the kid bothered by that issue? I, I can play this game with him. I can call on, on, on Beryl, right? And I can say, Beryl, you're the maidservant, right? Play this out with me. And I can call on little Devori in the corner and say, Devori, you be Basparo and have that discussion, right? And I can dramatize the problem that Chazal are seeing in chat. Right and make the kids struggle with it and and like what would you say what would you say and play it out and then begin to bring in the drash ask them how they see it and they begin to discover right something amazing and they get a newfound respect for Chazal as well so instead of thinking Chazal are sort of crazy and when I'm 18 or 19 years old I have a crisis of faith because I didn't understand the difference between shot and drash. I begin to see, you know, maybe Chazal were sophisticated, right? Maybe they were beginning to see something more there. And I would just say it's a, it's an approach that is has fallen out of vogue, but it's a very, very basic approach that goes back generations in our tradition, right? If you go back, everybody, all the sparam that you read on Chazal, right, except for modern ones, like the Medrash says, really took this approach, right? I mean, read the Rambam. The Rambam specifically says this over and over again. He says it in his introduction to Mishnah. He says it in the Yad. He says it in the Mora, right? This is how you're supposed to interpret Chazal. Read it in Rav Avram ben Rambam. Read it in Ramchal and his Maimur HaGadus. Read it in the Marsha. Every Marsha on the back of the page, right, is seeing there as some sort of metaphorical read, right, that is going on. Read it in Gur Aryeh. Read it in, oh, yeah. in Maral. Right? But we've gotten away from it. And if we get back to it, it's actually getting back to something ancient, but something which in our modern times we've kind of lost sight of. So that's, mm -hmm. I think, one important tool that's, that, that I think is helpful for folks. Okay, interesting. So I, I could see this being a, a very revolutionary approach, but like you said, in today's today's times, people are not used to that. So it, it, if let's say a fourth or fifth grader, I imagine, would come home on the Parashat Shemot and say over by the Shabbos table, my Rebbe said that Basparo's hand didn't really stretch out. It really stayed the same size. And the father goes smack him across the face. How do you say that? Chazal says her, her, her hand grew long. So th this could be very controversial. And people will call up the principal screaming, what, what kind of Rebbe did you hire here? Right. But, uh, you know, but the alternative, right? So I think, you know, I think that uh, a Rebbe can insulate themselves by having a conversation with the principal beforehand, right? Even sending out a note to the, you know, to the parents beforehand, right? Saying that what the, that what they're doing actually is deepening the reverence that children have for Chazal, right? And helping them understand in the derech that the marsha and the derech of the maral and you know dropping names always helps, right? It's not mm -hmm. I heard some sort of podcast with Aaron and Foreman <laughs> talking about this crazy new thing, right? right? But you know I read uh, Maimraha Gaddis and the Ramchal, and this right. is what he says, right? And 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 it's something we we've lost sight of, right? We're coming back to our tradition, and I think that will calm people down a lot if they understand that. And also, it's a lot of it is is the 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 aura in the classroom, right? In other words, the way non-verbally and verbally the Rebbe or the Mora is relating to Chazal is reverential, right? I treat Chazal as reverential, but the reverence is I'm trying to help the class discern the nuggets of what of, of what there is in there. I'm trying to help them understand the depth of Drash rather than simply, as the Rambam says, 
in, in, in the introduction to the, to the, you know, the Ram even says it. The Ram says, Chazal said, said secret things. They said important things, right? But unsophisticated, they said it in a way that unsophisticated people, uneducated people will take it as fairy tales, right? right? So we have a choice. Do we want to be the uneducated people who take it as fairy tales? Or do we want to really take it seriously and see what Chazal is saying? But I think that if you convey it with a reverence for Chazal, and that kids over time are coming and saying, wow, you know, I, I, when I grow up, I, I want to be a Talmud, you know, when I grow up, I, I want to learn this more. I, this, this really speaks to I me. I want to dig deeper into it. Yeah. I, right. I think that, uh, you know, parents will be appreciative. Hopefully when you have a kid coming back, the, the, the headline for, for the, for the parent isn't, You'll never even believe it, right? It's not that, you know, her hand never extended. The headline coming back is, you know, I heard this incredible shot in, you know, in, in, in this, you know, and, and, and the child is moved and the child talks about what it is they learn at the table. So, but I do agree with you. It takes a little bit of, uh, you know, of work beforehand, but I think that, you know, the alternatives is, uh, you know, it's a sugar high, um, but of uh, 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 teaching Chazal as if it's shot, but it's dangerous uh, in the in the long term. Okay, good. Yes, I want I wanted to focus on, on one other one other issue that I see with the teaching of Chumash, and that this is especially true in the older grades, especially in girls' high schools, where like the Mefarshim on Chumash somehow take over the whole subject of Chumash, and I see my daughter struggling to read Rambans, or Hachayim's, Klayakars, and, you know, it's somehow like the Chumash gets, lo- gets like, it's, oh, it's another commentary on the page as opposed to being the main, the main story. Uh, yeah. is, that, that, is that, that's something that, that I see, you know, as something that it's, that's not, it's not being done properly. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think it's true. I think that, look, uh, there is a place for learning the Farsham, right? But uh, there and um, and it's important and it's an important skill. But it's not the be all and end all. Um, it, it, the you know, and it's almost like we should relabel our chumash classes. That it's not chumash class; it's medieval super commentary on chumash. So if you right, if we would call it that, right? So we say, okay, but now let's learn chumash also, right? So you should at least have a class on learning chumash, and then another class, a more sophisticated class on learning medieval super commentary. But the real truth is, is that we're skipping, right? Because there's a certain skill that we're not teaching our kids. And what the skill we're not teaching them is to do the work that the Mepharshim themselves did before they wrote their Perushim, right? Whenever you write a commentary on a work, if I'm a commentator, whether I'm the Sforno or the, whether I'm the Ramban or the Beis Alevi or the Klei Yaka or the Art, you know, whatever I am, the nature of a commentator is that who am I writing to? I'm writing to a, re- a reader of work X, right? And I am advancing a commentary on work X, but the assumption is that you have read work X and thought about it, and now you're prepared to read my commentary on it. What we miss is the beginning part, right? We miss letting our kids learn work X and really thinking about it in preparation for learning the commentary. And I mean, the Chumash itself, that's what you mean. Meaning Chumash itself, right? And that drains all the fun out of reading the commentary. If I haven't really, really read the Pesukim of Parshas Kedoshim, and now I'm reading the Ramban, and I haven't sat and just 
learned Pashup Shah in a serious kind of way and really thought about it, I'm not prepared to read the Ramban, right? I'm, I'm just not, not prepared for it. The, um, and and it, 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 it's basic reading comprehension, right? Before I get into commentaries, I have to do basic reading comprehension on the text that they're commenting on. If I haven't done that, never gonna appreciate the commentary. And I've completely skipped over my own work, right? Every time you're having, an, the, the, whenever you think about reading, whenever you think about reading anything, any book, much less the Ramban or Sforno or Kumich, but any book, any book that you're reading, really, you're having a conversation, if you think about it, with, 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 with the writer. Books are ways of having conversations with dead people, people who are no longer there. They've written something, and you're in conversation with them. You're listening to what they have to say, right? And, and you're responding. But you have to be active. You're not there just to spit back what it is they're saying. You've got to really kind of think and, and, and work it. And if you're reading a work of commentary, you've got to come prepared for it and, and reading the basic text. So there's a whole slate of tools which I think we can begin bringing to our kids when they're young, in fifth and sixth grade, certainly in high school, to help them with this basic reading comprehension. It's just basic tools of how to read shot to put them in a position where where Rashi now makes sense, where the Ramban now makes sense, where the Sforna makes sense. You know, Aaron, we could do another podcast on just what are those tools, but, you know, I'll just name one or two of them real fast, right? Take it apart and put it back together again. By the way, all these tools you learned on Sesame Street, they're mamish simple tools. They're things <clears throat> that every little kindergartner, you know, everything you needed to know you learned in the kindergarten. Think about a toy. I give a kid a toy. What are they going to do, right? After they finish playing with the toy, they're going to take apart the toy. They're going to see what makes it work. And then they're going to try to put the toy back together again to see if they can put it back together again. That's what we do when we explore. That's what we do when we discover. We take things apart. We put it back together again. Before you learn Mepharshim, have kids learn a parak of Chumash, right? Have them read it through. Then take the time necessary, English, Hebrew, English, Hebrew, both. Translate it, figure it out. But then instead of just reading the words, have them take apart the parak. Mama just outline it. Right? If you could just outline this parak, if you could break it apart into its main ideas, right? how many parts would you break it into and where would you put the breaks? Show me where your breaks are. Give that to, to put the, break the kids up in the Chavrusa, have Shmeril and Beryl do it, right? have Devorah and Shprinza do it, right? and, and then we'll compare and let's see where did you break up and then defend your thesis. Why did you break the text up over there? Why did you break up the text over there? What do you think really is the best way to break up that text, right? Mm -hmm. Then as a class, we decide what we think our best way of taking, breaking up the text is. The next thing we do after we've broken it apart is put it back together again, which is, okay, so there was idea A, and that was the first five second. And then there's idea B, and then there's the, the, the second six second, right? And then there's idea C, but how do those ideas actually connect to each other? Right? Is there one idea that kind of seems out of place? Which brings me, by the way, to another tool which you learned on Sesame Street. If you ever looked at Sesame Street, you know, there's this game they play called which one of these things is not like the other? Which one just doesn't belong? There's four things on the screen and one of them just doesn't belong. Well, sometimes there's four ideas in a text, A, B, C, and B, and one of them just doesn't belong. Mama just dropped in out of nowhere. What are the... What in the world is that doing there? I thought we were reading about X, Y, and Z, and all of a sudden, the death of Devorah comes in in the middle of chapter 35. Who was Devorah? I never even heard about her. How come I know that she died? I don't know what that's doing here. 
understand that that doesn't seem to belong, right? And now try to figure out, well, okay, what are the ligaments that connect these bones? What's the, the connectors, the transition between A to B? Oh, seemingly A led to B, right? And, but, but, but then I have this C and I, I can't figure out how that connects. Now let's read Rashi. Now let's read this corner. Now let's read the, oh, wow, do you notice they're all dealing with that issue? They don't say they're dealing with that issue, but underneath the surface, aren't they all dealing with that same issue with what C is doing there? But if the kids have worked on reading comprehension, then they're at the same page as, as the Mepharshim to start with. They understand the issues in shot. They've thought about the issues of shot. They've struggled with those issues. And they'll see, oh, Devara, you actually said what the Sparno said, right? You're coming up with something of that theory. Isn't it interesting that the Ramban doesn't, why doesn't the Ramban accept that, right? Where is he coming from? Oh, he's coming, he's coming from that medrash? I wonder what's going on in that medrash. Let's, let's play left hand and right hand with that medrash. That medrash is also dealing with this problem in shot. That's something that didn't make sense, right? What's the harmony that it's bringing to the table, right, to help me, understand that, not necessarily literally, but what, what story is it telling me in harmony to help me figure that out? But basic reading comprehension, things like take it apart and put it back together again, which one of these things is not like the other, right? And, and, and Pashat, opening yourselves up to questions in the text, to the questions that the, read, that the author of the text wants you to ask. I think one of the most poisonous things which we sometimes do as Rebbeim is we say that as Morris says, we communicate either verbally or non-verbally to our kids that because the Torah is a perfect document written by God, it has no questions in it. It's perfect. There shouldn't be any problems with that. But of course, the whole history of commentary is that there are problems. Why are there problems? It's not because God didn't know how to write. It's because the tool that HaKadosh Baruch Hu used to write is actually to put issues in the text that you need to struggle with and you become an active That's participant. Point. That's exactly the out. point. Right. I, so identify those issues, identify those questions and bring them to the table. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what do you feel about the, the, the fact that in our schools, they traditionally have given such primacy to Rashi over any other Mepharish? Like, you know, you see every, everything, basically the circum the, get translated according to Rashi. Now you said, start out with the text. When you start with the text, it has to be like a basic understanding of the text. Otherwise, it, it's nonsense. It doesn't mean anything to them. And traditionally, an art scroll follows that approach. And a lot of other, uh, a lot of, all, all the schools traditionally follow the approach that you go with Rashi. How, how do you feel about that? What's that? What, 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 yeah, where should Rashi come in? We could spend a whole podcast talking about Rashi, but I'll give you just a, a quick heads up on Rashi. You know, look, the, Rashi is amazing, right? Um, but Rashi and Chumash is a little bit different than Rashi and Gemara. As boys, we're used to Rashi and Gemara, really. And Rashi and Gemara is, if you would ask Rashi to explain what he was doing in Gemara, right? He would tell you, I'm giving you the basic tools you need to understand Pshat, and anybody who's learned Gemara knows that that's true. But if you ask Rashi what he was doing in Chumash, I don't believe he would have given you the same answer. And indeed, the Rashbam, Rashi's own grandchild, suggests that Rashi wouldn't have given that same answer. And that in a conversation that the Rashbam had with him, the, Rashi said, if I had to do it over again, I would have written a Pirish that was more like my Pirish in Gemara that was dedicated to Pshat alone. <clears throat> the issue of what Rashi was trying to do with his Pirish is a subtle one right, exactly what he was trying to do. 
if you look at Rashi, you find that what Rashi is doing seems to be to be a mix of Pshat and Drash. In other words, and, and as best as I can tell, here's kind of the rule of thumb and how to understand what Rashi's trying to do. And I think it's important to communicate to your kids at some level that you're teaching. When, like Rashi is, do you ever notice when you're learning Gemara, there's not a Rashi on every, on every word, right? There's not even a Rashi on every line. How come there's not a Rashi in every line? When you're learning Masech uh, Baba Basra, right, the Rashbam, there's a Rashbam on every line. How come there's not a Rashi on every line, right? What's the difference? The answer is, if Rashi thinks you can figure it out yourself, he's not going to say anything. Rashi was smart enough to know that I don't need to tell you everything. You got a brain too. If you can figure this out, I communicate through my silence that you can figure it out, that you're good. You're fine here. When do I step in? When even yeah. using your own brain, you're never going to figure it out. So let me give you the tools to actually help you figure it out. In that respect, Rashi is the same in Chumash, right? Rashi doesn't speak on everything, right? And if you can figure it out, he's not going to tell you what you need to figure it out. So when does Rashi tell you Pshat? Rashi tells you Pshat when you can't figure it out. So all of a sudden, when I get to Parshas Truma, Right, and I can't figure out what Kafter Vaferach is and all these things of the menorah. So enter Rashi, and Rashi will actually start giving me pshat, and that's what Rashi tells me pshat. Rashi tells me pshat when the pshat is so difficult that I never would have understood the pshat just on my own. Or if Rashi's telling me that the the language of pshat is problematic from a grammatical standpoint, so Rashi will clarify it there too, as in the case of the first pasuk in the Torah, Rashi's bar where, for example, Rashi comes up with a revolutionary pshat, right? Which it doesn't mean the beginning of God, the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but Rashi will prove grammatically that it means in the beginning of God's creating the heaven and the earth, which is a whole, it, the, it's a dramatically different way of reading the psukim with dramatically different results. But all of that is pshat. However, Rashi's doing something else too. Occasionally, when you could have figured out the pshat, Rashi will enter in and will give you drash like the example of the arm of the daughter of Paro. He'll tell you that, right? Now, he'll tell you that usually because there's a nitpicking little difficulty in Pshat. Like, for example, right? Right? The, 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 the word ama, right? As opposed to shifcha, why did I use that word? Right? So Rashi will dwell on a nitpicky little problem or a subject verb disagreement or some little thing, and he'll bring in a drash. When he's doing that, it's not because you can't figure out shot. You could figure out shot. But here Rashi is doing something else. What Rashi is doing is connecting Torah Shabal Peh and Torah Shabal Sav, and he's suggesting that there are aspects of Torah Shabal Peh that are important to bring in here. More often than not, the Midrashim Rashi chooses work beautifully in the left-hand, right-hand harmony theory that I described to you before. Rashi is bringing in left-hand harmony, right? There's issues in the, the right hand. You can figure out what it means, right? But it's it's overly simplistic, or there's some larger thematic problem that Chazal are addressing, and Rashi will bring in those Chazals, usually without commentary, and it's Hamei bin Yavin. And it's up to you to bring those two together. But it's in those cases, I would say it's not up to you to think that that's shot. <laughs> it's up to you to harmonize that drash whenever you see the Sifra, Sifri, Mechilta, Medrash Rabbah, anything like that, that is not Pshat. 
That's Rashi telling you an overlay, another level of meaning, and you've got to bring that in. So it makes Rashi actually the hardest of all the Rishonim to actually teach because it's complex. Every other Mefarish, it's pretty clear what they're doing. With Rashi, it's not because of this. So it's a particular tragedy that like, you know, learn Chumash Rashi, learn Chumash Rashi as if it's Pshat, as if it's Pshat, as if it's Pshat. It's not. It, it's, it's a real Limud to learn it, and you've got to be careful with that. And so I, I would just suggest that tomorrow's and Rebbeim out there, again, even with Rashi, right, what you've got to do is you've got to do basic reading comprehension first with the kids, right? And then you just, what is going on in the Psukim themselves, right? And then when you get to Rashi, what is Rashi telling you that's Pshat? What is Rashi telling you that's Drash? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. But I think, you know, the, personally, to translate according to Rashi, I believe is problematic. And the reason it's problematic is Rashi wouldn't translate according to Rashi. Because Rashi didn't think he was doing shot the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, right. So, you know, sometimes yes, right? But sometimes no. If Rashi is telling you a drash, right, and I slip that in and I translate the psukim as if that is the pshat, I'm compounding the confusion between pshat and drash and setting up my kids for long-term failure. So you really want to avoid that. Yeah, I mean, the most difficult Rashi on Chumash is when he says, because he clearly right. <laughs> doesn't follow that. <laughs> well, what he's telling you, I think, there is he's telling you right here. In other words, it's not he's telling you a localized truth. He's not telling you about his oh, own. isn't telling you in general. Okay. Right. What he's telling you is in this Pasuk, uh-huh. there, there are many Agados. I'm not uh-huh. going to tell you all of them because right now I'm more interested in telling uh-huh. you God. Okay. I, I think that's the way to understand that. <laughs> yeah, it's misleading, but uh, yeah, it has to be. It has to be. I mean, it can't. It can't. It can't. I mean, he obviously was uh, was was bringing in the drash. Okay, so before we close out, just uh, in general, just was just a general question about chinuch. You interact with a lot of people, adults, a lot of people who watch your watch your uh, videos and and read your materials and interact with you with questions on on uh, you know some on commission. I'm sure more fundamental questions about uh, our Amuna, the, the Amuna religion and everything like that. And these are people oftentimes went to our schools, our yeshivas, they grew up and now they're parents of children in, in schools and yeshivas. So what do you feel as a whole, what's lacking in our chinuch system that, that, we, that we're doing, that we're, when we're teaching kids in the younger age, that it's not sufficiently preparing them for life ahead as a, as a, as a Jewish, as, a, as part of a Jewish nation? Yeah, I mean, like in the context of Chumash, I would just say that that the one ant, the one word answer, is confidence. Strangely, right? Which is that we as teachers need to have more confidence in God, right? We need to have more confidence in the text. If God wrote this, God was a pretty smart cookie, right? And and we don't have to be making excuses for it, right? And God wrote something which is marvelous, which is one of the deepest books that we could ever, or the deepest book that we could ever imagine. And that we should try to become students of that depth and try to see it as much as possible and not let our vision of it be obscured. You know, something you mentioned about your daughter before struck me, right? When you were talking about your daughter's experience in Chumash, I got the sense that she was in a Chumash class where it was easy to get lost. 
It was an easy to just not even even remember what the Pasuk said because there were so many pieces flying around. Got to remember the Sforno and how it's different than the Ramban and the Himmik says this and the Gurari says that and I have to remember it all for the test uh, and then I have to repeat it back and I have to do the same thing next week. It, it's just, it's overwhelming, right? And part of that overwhelming thing is that because also we teach reverence for for those who come before us, and we revere people like the Sporno and the Hamakdavar and Rashi and all these people. So we think to ourselves, "Who am I, little old me? Right? I could. What could I really understand? Right? So you say maybe I could understand a little Knech in Rashi according to the Gurarye, and I that could be the Chiddush that I give to the world, right? And exactly how I understand that. Maybe I could, but these guys were so much smarter than me. They was, knew so much more than me. If the Sforno wrote on this, and if the Hamak Dover wrote on this, if Rashi wrote on this, and the Ramban, who am I to even leapfrog all over them and go back to the text and try to understand what it's saying? It's a chutzpah for me to go back to the text and try to understand what it's saying. And these are our fears, right? But we have to have the confidence that God's word is really there and and can be appreciated and understood. And that if I come to it with my brain, it's going to mean something to me too. That God wrote a book that was not just a book for the Ramban, not just a book for the Sforno, not just a book for the Moga, but a book for me, right? And I can actually read this book and I can apply the same tools of reading, right? The same tools of basic reading comprehension, and it's going to get me somewhere. I'm going to be able to identify the problems. I'm going to be able to take it apart into pieces. I'm going to be able to put it back together again. I'm going to see what the issues are. I'm going to, then I'm going to be able to see some of the majesty that's in this book. I can see some of the connections that are in this book. I can see that the Torah, in a way, is the beginning of the, the original internet, the original World Wide Web, that somehow, right, there's there's things going on in Bracious that's connect things going on in Vayikra, and that they, they cross-fertilize with each other in wonderful ways, and you begin to see depth begin to unfold. And by the way, you know, I, w- I would just suggest if folks want to see more of this, you know, we've got a lot of videos in Aleph Beta. You can check them out. They're they're free. You get half an hour free a month, and you can you can just log on, create a free account, see what's there. But you know, maybe maybe some of it will resonate with you. But it's it's stuff that you can pick up and learn how to do to some extent on your own. It's not magic. It's not a puff of orange smoke. It's just these tools in action, right? It's the kind of things that I'm that I'm that I'm talking about, and I think if we could do anything, it's to give people the confidence that God wrote an amazing book and that we don't need to be afraid of it. We don't need to be afraid of asking questions because the book is strong enough for our questions. We don't need to be afraid of noticing problems. The book is strong enough to deal with it. And not only strong enough, but those problems and issues were intentionally put in the book as windows that if you begin to open them and you see there's a problem here, there's a problem there, there's a problem there, there's a problem there, you can connect the dots between those problems and suddenly a new layer of meaning begins to open up in the book. It's a book with layers of meaning. And I think if we if we have that confidence and we can communicate those confidence to that confidence to those we teach, we serve them well, right? We build up God, we build up Chumash, and we build up the Mepharshim, right? Because they're, they're 
doing stuff that makes sense to us. We see where they're starting. It's not just magic and smoke and mirrors. So, right, getting back to the foundations in the text and, and having the confidence that the text is up to it, I think is really important. And do you think that this will have an impact on religious commitment throughout life? I do. Um, you know, I don't know how much time you have, but, you know, I, <laughs> I, I had a, there was a... I'm um, sure you have a lot to say. <laughs> no, I mean, I have a lot to say on that, but I'll just close out with a story. You know, I was in a salad store once and uh, near where I live in Woodmere, and a guy came up to me. It was just me and him in the store. And he said, you know, I daven at the shul across the street. There's this guy who sits down next to me and he's got a black hat and he sends his kids to yeshiva the same way anybody else does. But I've been talking to him and he's totally empty inside. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in anything. He's hardly even Shomer Shabbos. He doesn't want to divorce his wife. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He keeps up appearances, but there's nothing more. What would you tell such a guy? He says to me. So I look at the guy and I say, you know, don't know if it's like asking for a friend and it's this guy. If it's himself. Right? Or, or is it really the guy next door? And I'm thinking like, you know, how many guys are there in shul that are like this that we just don't even know about? How many guys are almost like this? They're just holding on with their fingernails like Og to the, you know, to the Ark, right? That are somehow trying not to get wiped out in the model. That, and to me, you know, I think the, uh, you know, a solution, everybody has their own solution. Some people's solution is chalk, you know, mishmar and, 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 and getting together in food. Some people's solution is song. Some people's solution is chasidus. My solution is chumash, right? Just like pashat shat and chumash is a solution. It, you know, people feel that their eyes are open. And it's like, oh my gosh, God really wrote this book. And this is like an amazing thing. You could see it in the book. And it's not, it, it, the, the fascinating thing I think about the way God wrote Hamish is that if you start to use these tools, you actually begin to see the wisdom in the book. And you can start out not believing that God wrote it, just, just learning it and just be more and more impressed over time. And your Amuna just, just grows. At least that's been my experience and the experience I've had of, of more students. And I just closed out, you know, with the, I don't, in that story in the, the salad store, I forgot what I told him, but I, I feel that, you know, if you could do three things with somebody in the years before they get to be that kind of person where they're just holding on with their fingernails, those three things would be powerful. And those three things are the following, right? Thing number one, if you can open them up to these basic, simple issues, take it apart and put it back together again, which one of these things is not like the other, right? And just being able to unearthing the questions that they see, being able to see those things and slowly beginning to see that as you add up those things, right, themes begin to emerge underneath the surface of the text. And there's this other layer of meaning which, 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 which begins to develop. And you begin to see that other meaning of development again, if you want some experience in this, I've written a couple of books. You can get a Beast the Crouches of the Door, When You Thought You Knew, Exodus, You Almost Passed Over, Harsha Companion, Exodus, Genesis. Any of these will give examples of this kind of stuff. But <clears throat> number one is if you can start to believe that the book is a book like no other, that it's got these layers of meaning underneath the text. I didn't see that in Shakespeare. I didn't see that in Chaucer. I didn't see that in Milton. Right? But I see that here. That's pretty remarkable. 
The next thing you see is once you begin to see those layers of meaning, number two is things that seemed completely irrelevant to me aren't irrelevant anymore. Why do I care about Shosh Naga Chasapara? I don't know, why do I care about Shavuot HaShomrim and the Parsa Shavuot What does that have to do with my life, right? But all of a sudden, no, there's these other layers of meaning. And once you see them, once you see the, the dimensions of depth that's in here, it's actually starting to talk to me about stuff that matters to me in my life. It's, it's relevant in a whole new way. That's number two. And number three is I can begin to do this with my own brain. In other words, that which I see, the depth in Torah, is not because somebody with a long beard screamed at me and tried to intimidate me and said, the Torah is the most deep thing you've ever seen, and I have to believe, and you have to believe. I don't have to believe anything. I see it. I see it with my own mind. I'm beginning to appreciate that with my own head. The, the notion that I'm using my own brain to reach across the centuries, to connect with a book that's 3,000 years old, to see its beauty and to see its depth with my own brain. But it's not just Rashi who can do that. It's not just the Sporno who can do that. It's not just the Amidabra who can do that. But I can do that and have a Havana in Torah in the actual text with my own brain and then begin to see what the Mepharshim are saying and then begin to see what the Chazal are saying. That's super empowering. It's like going to Israel and, and going on an archaeology dig when where I'm digging with my own hands in the dirt and I find that coin from the times of the Pashmanayim. And I know that no one's seen that coin for the last 1800 years. And I feel connected to this Jewish history that's so much larger than myself. And I feel transformed in that moment. Uh, so too, the Torah is so much bigger than me. And it's, it's, it's Eretz Yitzchel in a nutshell. And I can reach across and connect to it and feel like, oh my gosh, this is mine. I have a Havana in this. I'm connecting with this. I understand that. If you can do those three things, right, which is help people see those layers, help them begin to see that relevance, and help them understand that with their own brain that they can begin to connect, you, I believe you transform people's relationships to the text. Their relationship to Torah completely changes. What if you, have a, what if you had a shul of those kind of people, right? What kind of community is that, right? Folks that have that kind of relationship to Torah, right? How many folks are holding on by their fingernails who wouldn't be holding on to their fingernails if they had that kind of relationship to Torah? So I think we have a chance in Chinuch with Chumash at beginning to give our kids some of that from a young age and as they grow. And it's and kids that can have that, it's an amazing gift. This is great. Really, really powerful stuff. Uh, you know, we ho- ho- hope that... Uh, we could implement this and more in our schools. If, if, if there's rebellion with teachers who want to who wanna try to learn more about your methods and, and try to give it over to their students, I mean, how, can they, how can they learn more? Like That's right. I mean, there are a lot of materials are used in schools, right? Uh, you know, people show the videos and it looks like a nice little cartoon. It looks like something that, you know, kids will like and they do, right? But surreptitiously underneath the surface, the kids are also getting skill. Right, and they're beginning to learn this. They they begin to swim in it. They begin to think like this and to learn it. You know, it's about three hundred schools across the world that are beginning to that, that are using it. it you know, uh, there's teachers that are teaching it. Uh, sorry, Titlebaum. Mrs. Titlebaum uh, is a is a great resource. I don't know if I have permission to put her name out on there, but I'll put her name out there at the risk of. Uh, she's the Rebbitzin uh, Emeritus of Young Israel Warren Cedarhurst. Um, she's a master teacher. She's been teaching Chumash 
actually using using these videos. She's been teaching an honors Flemish class for a number of years in, in high girls, school. High school honors twelfth grade Flemish, and the girls who've been in it um, have been. Uh, uh, you know, she claims that it that it actually raises their SAT score. SAT scores matter. Wow, like <laughs> teaching them that's a good things. selling point. <laughs> so, but but it also transforms their relationship to Flemish. The kids, uh, you know, they they they're they're very blown away by it. Um, Yoni Fine uh, out in Hollywood, Florida, the principal there, six hundred fifty kids in Hollywood, right, has has been using it extensively. Others, uh, I just don't know all the names, but if you're interested. Uh, people can email me, uh, and these uh, these these right. these are all the things that are that you we've been speaking about. All the incorporate yeah. all uh, all the these methods kind of stuff, of, and, and and it's there. You know, look, teachers who haven't really been trained in the methodology can begin to pick it up, right? Watching the videos and all, it's as simple as you know, screen a video. It, it does a lot of the heavy lifting, but break it up in the middle. Watch it beforehand. Stop it halfway through. Ask kids what they, you know, what they think or where they're going. You know, if I give an answer in a video, you can disagree. You know, have them. It's not Torah Misenai. Have an open season. Have the kids look at the evidence and come to their own conclusions. Um, and, and uh, you know, it can be a very, very powerful tool. And those who would like are free to uh, to email sure. us, and we can do our best to connect them with teachers that can, you know, serve a, a little bit as big brothers and big sisters that have tried it. Um, you can reach me at info at alafeta.org, uh, info at alafeta.org. Alafeta is hard to, to, to we'll put it in the show notes. Everybody can, hey, get you can put it in the show notes and people can. Okay. Come Thank you very much, Rabbi Foreman. This is great. Okay. Aaron, great meeting you. Great talking with you. And, uh, we'll do it again sometime. You've been listening to Chinuch 2.0, a show exploring the changes happening to how we do Chinuch. Chinuch 2.0 is hosted and produced by me, Aaron Parnas. You can subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts or on our website, chinuchshow.com. For suggestions, comments, or guest ideas, please visit chinuchshow.com. Thanks for listening.